Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Hampton Sides at Hennepin County's Southdale Library. Hampton Sides is one of the best-known and best-selling American historians of the past decade. Sides first made a name for himself with 2001's Ghost Soldiers, a World War II narrative chronicling the greatest rescue mission in the history of our armed forces. The debut received the Penn USA Award for Nonfiction and also became the basis for documentaries on the History Channel and PBS. His follow-ups, Blood and Thunder and Hellbound on His Trail, focused on key chapters of America's westward expansion and civil rights movement, respectively, also saw successful small-screen adaptations. His newest, In the Kingdom of Ice, is a white-knuckle tale of polar exploration and survival, according to Random House. During his club book event, Sides uses a number of images to help tell the story of the men aboard the USS Jeanette. The images are available on clubbook.org slash podcast if you'd like to take a look. Now, Hampton Sides. Thank you very much. Well, I, I feel um, a little bit like I'm carrying coals to Newcastle, trying to, to present a story about the Arctic to uh, a bunch of people from uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, uh, I think you guys know a few things about cold, but perhaps it's inspiring to know that there's even a colder place uh, than here uh, in, the far, uh, in the far high north um, of, of the Bering Strait. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how I wrote this book, why I wrote this book, and uh, how I came to this story. Um, before I start into this, I always ask audiences, barring those of you who are reading the book or who have just finished the book, I know there's one gentleman out here just uh, been keeping up late at night, many nights, uh, in, uh, reading the book. Apart from you guys, how many of you have heard or had heard of the story of the USS Jeanette? Two people right here, maybe 2.5, 2.5. Well, that's pretty good. Most audiences, when I ask this question, uh, the answer is zero. Uh, and it's appalling to me, truly appalling to me, that this story is so obscure, that the expedition uh, that these men went on, that the ordeal that they went through, um, the discoveries that they made are, are so obscure, because these guys were... In their time, they were household names. It was as though we had sent astronauts off into outer space. Um, they were the subject of best-selling books and, and poems and songs and parades in New York City. Um, everyone knew about the men of the USS Jeanette, uh, not just in this country, but all over the world. Uh, and yet, it's completely forgotten today. And uh, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I spent four years working on it, was just in some way, somehow, sort of elevate this story to the place where I think it uh, truly belongs. Because it really is one of the great adventure stories of all time, and certainly in the annals of, of Arctic exploration. These are some of the survivors of the Jeanette uh, who came home to the United States and were fated as, uh, as, as exploring heroes, as martyrs to science, those who died martyrs to science, and um, uh, yeah, yeah this, was, uh, this was a sensation in the Gilded Age. One place where uh, the voyage of the Jeanette is known and, and celebrated is this place, uh, Annapolis, and the Naval Academy there. Uh, this was a U.S. Navy expedition uh, uh, conducted by, run by U.S. Navy officers, and because of that, there, there's a, there's a 
intimacy, there's a familiarity there uh, about this expedition, including the Jeanette Memorial, which is on the banks of the Severn River there. And uh, s while I was on the book tour, somebody stood up and told me that he was a graduate of the uh, Naval Academy and that he was required as a, as a young midshipman to memorize the number of icicles on the Jeanette Memorial. Uh, this is the kinds of useless things they make a, you know, a, a midshipman do uh, when, during some sort of hazing ritual, but it's very well known there. Now, the Jeanette expedition was based on what we now would probably uh, consider a quixotic, perhaps crazy uh, concept, which was to find the open polar sea, as it was called, the open polar sea. There was this notion that dated back to the Greeks and the Vikings uh, and to a lot of old maps, including this one, which was a Mercator map from the 1590s, that showed um, an open polar sea, that this idea that there was a warm water basin, or at least um, an ice-free basin at the top of the world. Once you get something fixed on a map like this, especially a beautiful map, uh, an influential map, it becomes increasingly difficult to dislodge that concept from the public imagination. And uh, so you, what you had throughout the 1700s, 1800s, uh, were a succession of theorists and scientists and pseudoscientists and sometimes cranks who uh, endeavored to explain why there had to be an open polar sea. Uh, so what you had also is a succession of explorers who, who tried to look for it. The Jeanette expedition was one of the very last of the expeditions that was trying to find this open polar sea. Dated back to the, the Vikings who talked about Ultima Thule, some sort of place north of, of the ice where there were tropical animals and various creatures like this. Um, the Vikings talked about Hyperborea, north of the mountain somewhere. There was supposedly a place uh, that could be, is, if you could just reach it, uh, where there was kind of an oasis in this desert of ice. Uh, during the uh, 1800s, middle 1800s, there were uh, a succession of even wackier scientists, uh, including the, uh, this one scientist from Cleve, uh, Cleveland, or excuse me, Cincinnati, named John Cleve Sims, who believed in this concept called the poles, uh, excuse me, holes at the poles. He believed there were these enormous holes these, uh, that led down into the earth and that there were these concentric circles. Uh, and inside the earth, there were civilizations who were just dying for us to go find them. A, a wacko, obviously, but he sold out aud auditoriums all over the country with this concept and convinced members of Congress that we should go to the North and the South Pole looking uh, for these holes. So this was sort of the environment uh, out of which the Jeanette expedition was born. This kind of shows Sims's hole as, as it was uh, depicted in the pages of Harper's Magazine. I thought this was a concept that died in the 1800s, but there's still a very active and very colorful subculture. If you just Google holes at the polls, you'll get stuff like this. <laughs> uh, this is a uh, conspiracy kind of subculture. They believe that, that there are indeed are these giant holes, and it's the explanation for things like UFOs. And the Obama administration is doing everything they can to prevent us from knowing about it. Um, so it's very interesting. There seems to be this deeply embedded idea in our psyche that, uh, that there is some sort of civilization there. Jules Verne, with the uh, publication of his book, A Journey to the Center of the Earth, kind of further popularized the notion of holes at the poles, uh, an open polar sea. He brought it underground into these subterranean cavities, which he called... Um, the Central Sea, uh, but again, very popular notion in the mid-1800s uh, that there was something up there. And, and this all spoke to this kind of nagging, gnawing need to know that we had. It wasn't just in America, it was all over the world, this need to know what was at the top of the world. One of the few places on Earth um, where man seemingly could not reach and therefore filled in this void of, of our ignorance with all these crazy um, conceptions and, and concepts. Um, of course, now, we know who lives up there and, and we know what's up there. Santa Claus is up there. Um, I thought this was somehow an ancient idea. I, I don't know where, I, I, I just assumed it was an idea that went back thousands of years, or a thousand years. Um, but in fact, it got its start 
with this uh, cartoon in the 1860s. It's a Thomas Nast cartoon in the pages of Harper's, uh, which shows Santa and his helpers uh, living at the North Pole. Um, we seem to want to believe there was this happy, jolly, warm place up there, somewhere beyond the ice, the ring of ice, uh, if we could just somehow uh, reach it. Now, there were a number of scientists um, and experts in the fields of geography who further speculated on what was up there. And perhaps foremost among all of those was this guy, Dr. August Peterman, who was the foremost maker of maps in the world at that time. His operation in Gotha, Germany was second to none. They produced these beautiful hand-colored, up-to-date maps. They were kind of the Google, the Google Earth of, of their day. Uh, and he was uh, not only a great map maker, but he was somebody who called himself a hypothetical cartographer, um, a theoretical, sometimes, cartographer, meaning he was concerned not only with the way the world looked, but those few places left on the, on the globe that had never been touched by man. And he pontificated endlessly about those last few places, like the interior of, of the Amazon or the interior of Australia, and certainly the North and South Pole. He had a lot of theories about what was up there, and they were just about all completely and entirely wrong. Unfortunately, men sort of had to die or suffer horrible uh, hardship in order to prove or disprove his theories, but he sent many expeditions uh, into the Arctic uh, to prove his various um, ideas. He also, like so many of the characters in my book, and so many of the characters in this period of the, of the Gilded Age had um, what you'd have to say is excellent, uh, excellent facial hair. Dr. Peterman's um, maps were uh, numerous and, and they were works of art. They fetch thousands and thousands of dollars uh, at auction now among uh, connoisseurs of vintage maps. This was one of them, the Atlas of Physical Geography. Um, I went to Germany to try to understand Dr. Peterman and his world there, his map-making universe, his publishing universe. This is a, a monument to him there. This was his house where he was born and raised. I just wanted to begin to understand like, the power of maps in this, in this age and what that power gave you in terms of a platform for pontificating about, uh, about the ends of the earth. Um, this begins to show some of his concepts of the Arctic. Um, he believed that um, there were warm water currents, and we were certainly beginning to learn about the power of the Gulf Stream uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, which was feeding northward from the tropics. We knew that the Gulf Stream went past Norway. We knew that it headed in the general direction of the North Pole. He believed that it actually tunneled through the ice, softened up the ice, and created what he called a thermometric gateway. Uh, it only takes like, you know, a very elegant German with a waxed mustache to come up with a concept like this, but um, that if you could just bash through that gateway, you would have slushy ice and you would somehow find a way to this open polar sea at the top of the world. He also believed that this other current on the Pacific side, called the Kurosiwo, uh, kind of a, a corollary to the Gulf Stream, did very much the same thing and tunneled through the ice at the Bering Strait. And uh, that these two great currents of the world converged at the top, creating the open polar sea. Beautiful theory, symmetrical. It seemed to imply that the Earth had this flam, you know, this uh, almost kind of grandiose um, uh, thermometric or, you know, uh, thermoregulation system. Uh, and of course, it was completely and utterly um, wrong. Now, there are a number of people who were fascinated by Dr. August Peterman's ideas, and uh, among those was this guy, the third richest man in New York, and the publisher and editor-in-chief of the largest newspaper in the world, the New York Herald. This is James Gordon Bennett, Jr., who is one of the major characters of the story. He um, was this Gilded Age spoiled brat who got anything and everything he wanted. He had yachts all over the world. He was... Um, the youngest commodore of the New York Yacht Club. He won the first transatlantic yacht race. Uh, let's see, what else did he do? He was a speed walker, a champion speed walker. Um, 
he was, uh, he urinated publicly into a grand piano at a party in New York at the house of uh, uh, his fiancés, which led him to be thrown out into the, to, to the streets and flogged, and then he declared a duel, he, he went through a duel, and then he eventually uh, exiled himself to Paris where he ran his newspaper, the New York Herald, via the transatlantic uh, cables, and started his paper there, the, the Paris Herald, which became ultimately the International Herald Tribune, which is the, still exists and is sort of the last remnant of his, of his empire. But um, in narrative terms, this is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. He's just a great character who was into you know, exploration. He was into adventure and spectacle. And uh, let's, just a little bit about him. Um, this is his newspaper, um, the New York Herald. This is his uh, newspaper headquarters in New York. Um, when one of the interesting things about um, Bennett was that he was really, really into, he, he like had a fetish for owls. He loved owls. He had live owls, stuffed owls, owls on his cufflinks, owls on all of his uh, various villas and things. But he also he had them at the top of the building there in New York City, these owls that had blinking lights, these little green, uh, excuse me, red lights that blinked and winked. Uh, now, this building is, unfortunately, was, was knocked down uh, and is now a park called Herald Park, uh, Herald Square in New York City. And in Herald Square, there's still one owl that still blinks, its, it's eyes still wink at you. Um, so that's one of the legacies of um, James Gordon Bennett. This is one of his yachts. This is the Lysistrata. Um, which was at the time the largest yacht in the world. It had um, a Turkish bath, it had a library, uh, it had uh, a theater, two padded cells for his dairy calf so he could have fresh cream every morning for breakfast. Uh, this is the Gilded Age, you know, this is a very, very, uh, you know, an age of where a few individuals wielded enormous power and enormous influence and had enormous wealth. This is a famous painting that shows life aboard one of his yachts. Um, my wife and I decided we, we had to go, uh, we had to do this, we had to go do research in Paris uh, uh, on James Gordon Bennett Jr. Uh, we, this is one of his apartment uh, complexes. This is his villa in uh, the south of France near Monaco where he spent much of the year. Uh, the view from his villa. Uh, we barged in on the villa which is still owned, you know, lived, someone lives there. I don't know if they, they were just private citizens but they let us see the apartment and little, little uh, echoes of Gordon Bennett show up, inc including the owls. He also was really into Pomeranians. Uh, he had over a hundred Pomeranians and talked to them and believed that they were quite wise. Gordon Bennett was very into competitive sports and uh, is known as the father of American polo because he brought polo to the U.S. He also brought tennis to the United States. The very first competitive tennis match ever held in the U.S. was uh, during the summer that the US Jeanette, USS Jeanette was trapped in the ice uh, going through all of its uh, uh, travails, he brought tennis to Newport, Rhode Island and to this place that he built called the Newport Casino, which is now the International Tennis Hall of Fame. So that's Gordon Bennett for you. Uh, also was into uh, later, a little after my story, got into um, uh, automobile racing and balloon racing as well. The Gordon Bennett Cup still exists as the premier event in sort of international balloon racing. So that's Gordon Bennett. Uh, Bennett was probably most famous, however, despite all of the things that I've, I've just covered, uh, for sending this guy, uh, Henry Morton Stanley, to Africa to find find, I put that in quotes, Livingston. Not, Livingston wasn't exactly lost, he didn't really need to be found, but it made a great series of dispatches for the New York uh, Herald. And uh, it made such a hit, in fact, that really Bennett spent the rest of his career looking for encores to Stanley Livingston. And, and really that's where he began to hatch this idea of bankrolling an expedition to the North Pole. So he hired this guy to do it. This is the, the sort of the hero of the story, the protagonist certainly of the story, uh, Captain George Washington DeLong, the captain of the USS Jeanette. 
Uh, this was a vessel that Bennett bought and uh, had completely rebuilt in San Francisco uh, for the ice. Uh, sheathed in iron and, and uh, planking, rebuilt from the inside out because they knew that even though they were looking for this open polar sea, they would experience at least for a few months, if not a few years, an enormous amount of ice pressure. So it was rebuilt and it was stuffed from the inside out with all the latest American inventions, including uh, Thomas Edison's lights, which had just been invented but were not perfected yet. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they didn't quite work. <laughs> when they got to, they, the idea was they wanted to light up the North Pole. It's dark, six months of the year. Uh, so what a boon this would be to uh, everyone's um, uh, uh, morale to be able to light up the North Pole, but unfortunately they didn't quite work. Uh, Edison was just perfecting his light bulb. But there was also telephones from Alexander Graham Bell and all sorts of telegraph equipment. They wanted to be able to communicate over large stretches of the ice. Uh, there was also Budweiser beer, an organ, lots of musical instruments, a state-of-the-art library. Um, they knew that they were going deep into the ice. They knew they were going to be gone for years. And this is the Gilded Age, you know. They didn't want to suffer too much. So um, that was the concept as they left San Francisco in the summer of 1879. Everyone knew about the Jeanette, uh, all the papers, not just the New York Herald, but all the papers covered this. There were 15,000 people gathered on the banks there in San Francisco to wish them well. It was a national endeavor. Uh, everyone wanted to know what was north of the Bering Strait and north of this fairly recently purchased territory uh, that we had bought from the Russians, Alaska. Um, so that was the impetus for this great launch into the North Country. They went through the Bering Strait, um, 33 men, uh, very, a very motley crew of folks, uh, including five naval officers, two civilian scientists, a naturalist uh, from the Smithsonian Institution, you know, Chinese cooks from Ch uh, Chinatown in San Francisco, and uh, two Inuit hunter dog drivers from Alaska. Um, so they headed north looking for this warm water current, but they never found this warm water current. They never found the open polar sea. Uh, what they found as they worked their way north through the strait was ice, lots and lots of ice. They became trapped, imprisoned in the ice in September of 1879 and drifted in the ice for two years. They didn't really suffer during this two-year period, exactly. They were slowly going crazy from inaction, from boredom, from uh, too much togetherness. But they had plenty to eat. DeLong kept them very busy with uh, chores, with uh, games out on the ice. There were football games. There were um, hourly measurements taken uh, you know, uh, on the ice in terms of weather and the thickness of the, of the ice, barometric pressure, temperature, so forth. They had a lot of things to do. But um, needless to say, over two years, they were slowly going crazy. Now, I have um, these photographs. Uh, there, there were lots and lots of photographs that were taken during this expedition. But unfortunately, all of the uh, photographs went down with the ship. Uh, so what we mainly have are engravings and, and uh, pieces of art like this. Now, I'm going to talk about some of the characters that figure into the story especially during this two-year period when they're kind of locked in the ice. This is the meteorologist and one of the most brilliant members of the expedition. Um, this is Jerome Collins, an Irishman, uh, an amazing man, an amazing character, but unfortunately he had a propensity for uh, delivering really bad puns, which is fine, you know, for a couple of days, you know, two or three days, maybe a week, but this was two years. Um, so unfortunately by the end of that two-year period, um, Many of the guys uh, were ready to wring his neck. Uh, there's also Dannenhauer, the navigator on the ship, a graduate of uh, the, the uh, Naval Academy, a brilliant navigator. He had sailed all over the world, but unfortunately it was learned after he got on the expedition that he had earlier in his life contracted syphilis. And uh, it began to manifest itself in this condition called syphilitic iritis. Um, which required that he undergo multiple operations on his eyes without anesthesia down in the bottom of the ship. He could not tolerate any kind of light. And so for the entire voyage, he's down, down below wearing these kind of goggles and uh, 
not able to participate in the voyage and, and undergoing excruciating pain. But it did say something about this voyage that what you essentially have is a blind navigator. There's also Melville, the engineer, who is, uh, really emerges along with DeLong as one of the great heroes, one of the protagonists of the story. Melville could fix anything and as the voyage went from bad to worse, was required to fix just about everything and cannibalize different machines to build new machines. The, the ship begins to leak as it's experiencing this enormous pressure. So he devises a series of windmills and other kinds of pumps to keep the, the ship from sinking. And uh, he, he's just a great character. He's, he's somewhat, uh, he's some sort of distant relation of uh, Herman Melville, the, the author, and um, really one of the heroes of the story. Okay, so this shows the general drift of the Jeanette. The first year is that sort of crazy zigzag pattern. They're essentially going backwards as much as they're going forwards. The ice doesn't really want to transport them in the right direction. But by the second year, they're beginning to uh, head in the right direction towards the North Pole. And DeLong begins to think, well, we're not going to sail to the pole. He's giving up on this concept of an open polar sea, but he thinks maybe we'll drift there. Maybe the ice will take us there. And uh, as long as the ship holds up, they'll, they'll reach the North Pole. Meanwhile, back at home, <laughs> George DeLong's wife, Emma, is wondering, you know, where is DeLong? And uh, after now two years of, of the ice, without hearing anything, she begins to get quite worried. I have a picture of here of her mainly because early on in the research for the book, I had this amazing experience that I've never hap had happened before. I think historians dream about this, which is this idea that you'll find a distant relative and you'll find out that they have a trunk in their attic full of letters that they'll just give to you. Never happens. Well, it happened in this case. I was cold calling all the relatives of George Washington DeLong in Connecticut. I'd heard there were some. I called a woman named Catherine DeLong and she said, yeah, I found this trunk full of letters and I, you don't know what to do with it. I was thinking of throwing it away. You know, would you come look at it? And it proved to be the personal papers of this woman Emma DeLong, the wife of the, of the captain. It was a treasure trove and figures prominently into the story, especially the letters that she wrote during the summer of 1880 and 1881 uh, that she sent by way of these Arctic whaling vessels uh, in the hope that somehow, some way, they would reach her husband. They're beautiful letters, they're haunting letters. As the story goes from bad to worse, they're, they're heartbreaking to read. So her, her um, trove of letters really proved to be kind of the emotional spine of, uh, of the second half of the book. And uh, I quote from them liberally because people, I tell you, people in general, but she in particular, uh, wrote so beautifully back then. Uh, you know, it's like today it would probably be a couple of texts or something. Are you going to be home for dinner? You know, uh, she wrote these elegant, eloquent, and, and uh, heart-wrenching letters. This is uh, Catherine DeLong, the woman that I just mentioned that I found. Wonderful lady. This was at the Explorers Club in New York City uh, a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, Catherine DeLong. So it doesn't happen very often. I think historians can count on maybe one of those episodes per, per career, you know, the, the trunk full of letters in, in the attic. These are some of the letters that she wrote. She wrote uh, in triplicate. She saved copies of her own, but some of the letters actually came back to her from the Arctic years later. And this is uh, one, of, one of those. Um, you'll see this one was stamped by Robert Perry. When he was going to the North Pole, uh, he found in a hut in far northern Greenland a letter that Emma DeLong had written to her husband uh, 25 years earlier. This letter had sat on the shelf in this hut in Greenland for all this time. And then he, uh, he grabbed the letter. It still had the, the wax seal on the letter, on the envelope. And he personally delivered it to her back in New York City. And it's in my files now. All, all these files will ultimately go to the Naval Academy in, in Annapolis. Um, when I do these stories, these narrative histories, I really like whenever possible to go to the places that I'm writing about. And in this case, I really wanted to go to Russia and I wanted to go to Siberia and the Bering Strait and some of these islands off the coast of, of Siberia that figure prominently in, in DeLong's voyage. Um, I thought I could go through Alaska and, uh, and it would be really simple, but unfortunately, no. I had to go through Moscow. Uh, because I had to get multiple permits to go to these restricted areas, these military zones. 
So I went to Moscow. I got myself a really bad haircut. Uh, I got my permits after a couple of weeks working with some local uh, fixers there. And then I flew east uh, for, I think it's 10 time zones, all the way to the east coast of Siberia uh, to Anadir, where I picked up this Russian icebreaker that was heading north with a bunch of scientists and uh, some extreme birders towards um, the Bering Strait and Wrangel Island, uh, an island off the coast of Siberia. I thought it was kind of ridiculous to have traveled 13,000 miles all the way around the world to look at my own country, because we were looking at Alaska a number of times and uh, you know, waving, waving to Alaska, wa waving to Sarah Palin um, <laughs> as we worked our way north uh, through this very, um, you know, well, almost completely uninhabited terrain of the, the northeastern point of the Eurasian continent. We did go to this one village, though, called Ulen, where this is taken with an iPhone, but it's, uh, they had just killed a whale. They were having a ceremony, and um, they invited us on, uh, onto the island to, to check it all out. There were a number of Russian soldiers there, though, who wanted, very much wanted us to leave. Um, we stayed for a few hours and then headed, kept heading north. Began experiencing a little ice in, this is in mid-August uh, 2012. Uh, finally, we reached thicker and thicker ice, and began, we began to be glad that we were on, a, on an icebreaker uh, because <laughs> the ice was getting thicker and thicker, and uh, uh, several times we were uh, brought to a complete standstill, you know, riding up on the ice, backing up, trying to find our way through, through this ice. Now this next one was taken from the bow of the ship looking straight down into the ice, and that's the perspective. But it's uh, this feeling of sh you know, just shuddering and shaking and the whole ship vibrating as we rammed through uh, this little bit of ice. Uh, so we eventually did reach our destination, which was Wrangel Island, which is an amazing piece of real estate off the northeast coast of Siberia. Um, it's about 100 miles long. It's called the Galapagos of the High North because of all the wildlife that lives there. Um, we came ashore by way of these little um, uh, zodiac rafts, and uh, the Russian um, preserve, the, the rangers who live there, there's only four people who live there year-round, they were so glad to see us, uh, so glad to see human beings welcomed us there. It's an amazing place. We were very glad um, that all the cabins there, and there are just a few, few structures there on the island, um, all had these uh, bear guards. Uh, on all the windows because the place is just crawling with polar bears. It's, um, cons it's considered the largest denning ground in the world for polar bears and because the ice, uh, despite what you just saw, <laughs> there's a lot of ice, uh, there, there's a lot of summers rather where the ice is completely uh, melted and not reliable and because of that the polar bears have been gathering in record numbers, huge numbers, you know, 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 congregating like this uh, on uh, the refuge of Wrangel Island. I went there for National Geographic magazine. I was doing a story about Wrangel Island and was with a Russian photographer named uh, Sergei Gorshkov, who's been going to Wrangel for over a decade, taking these amazing photographs. So from here on out, I think some of these, most of these pictures are his. Uh, he gets really close to his subjects and uh, lots of Arctic fox, reindeer, muskox. So Wrangell Island is famous also for um, being the last place on Earth, uh, so, so far as the experts believe, uh, where woolly mammoths lived. And so consequently, all over the place you'll find these uh, tusks just kind of in riverbeds, and, you know, just hanging out. You know, it's like I tried to put this in my overnight, overnight bag. Um, it, it's everywhere. So Sergei took this picture of me with, with one that we found in a, in, a, in a riverbed. It's one of the places where mastodon and you know, mammoth scientists go to study, um, to study mammoths. So that's Wrangell Island. It's an amazing place. Uh, it's also a place that um, is somewhat controversial because y y uh, American explorers were the first to land, at least in modern times, on Wrangell Island. Uh, and claimed it for the United States. They were not the men of the Jeanette because the, even though they tried to land on it, they could not get there. The ice moved them up and over and beyond it too quickly. But in the summer of 1881, 
a number of vessels were sent north to look for the Jeannette. And uh, one of those vessels was the Corwin, which was sent from San Francisco. They managed to land on Wrangell Island because there was no ice that summer. And uh, they raised an, an American flag and claimed it for the U.S. If you go online, you'll find a, a fair amount of controversy about who really owns Wrangell Island. One of the guys who was on board the Corwin that summer was this guy, the, the father of the American environmental movement, the great conservationist, John Muir, uh, who wrote about this in an amazing book called The Cruise of the Corwin. Uh, at this time, he was just a young, scrappy newspaper reporter from San Francisco who uh, just wanted to study glaciers and, and go north into the, into the Arctic. But he wrote about this beautifully, and he becomes a major character in the, in the sort of the middle part of, of the book as they're looking uh, for any sign of the Jeanette. But they do not find any sign of, of the Jeanette. They begin to give up hope on the Jeanette. Because at this point, the Jeanette was about a thousand miles away, still locked in the ice, uh, in, northwest of Wrangell Island, beginning to experience this enormous pressure from the ice pack and leaking terribly. And DeLong began to understand that the ship was going to sink. And so he devised a very elaborate plan of what to take with him, what to get out on the ice, uh, and began to rehearse this because they knew they might not have much time. He was trying to figure out what to bring, and certainly the three, uh, the three uh, whale boats that they would have to drag over the ice, some food, uh, but he wondered about his log books, these heavy folio-sized books and papers uh, and diaries and journals. Uh, but then he decided, no, he had to bring them all because there would be no proof that this expedition ever happened if he didn't bring them with him. So he lugged them across the ice and, and all the way uh, during this voyage. And uh, when you go to National Archives in Washington and see these books, you just begin to think about the enormous voyage, the enormous journey that these, that these uh, documents um, uh, took. Eventually, in the summer of 1881, the ship begins to to sink, and they realize this is it. So he gets the last belongings out on the ice. The ship sinks in June of 1881, leaving 33 men and their 40 dogs in these three whale boats and a little bit of food and a few belongings and, of course, these log books and, and uh, journals out on the ice to try to figure out what to do and how to save themselves. Um, the nearest landmass was 1,000 miles away which was the central coast of uh, the central Arctic coast of Siberia. And this begins uh, one of the great survival stories of all time, one of the great um, stories of comradeship, leadership, uh, as these men have to hold this thing together over the summer of 1881 to try to reach open water and sail to Siberia. They are in harness for months on end, dragging their supplies over the ice, uh, working, their way, working their way south, trying to, in, in DeLong's case, trying to kind of hold off mutiny, hold off any kind of suggestion of a mutiny as they're working their way south, hunting for polar bear as they go because they really didn't have any food. After 92 days, uh, they finally begin to work their way uh, to open water. Now this shows kind of the general path that they took. The cross there is where the, the ship sank. And then you'll notice that the, the path goes north for a little while. And that's not because DeLong was particularly disoriented. It's because um, they found out after a whole week of slogging over the ice and working as hard as they've ever worked in their entire lives that the ice was moving, was, the ice itself was drifting far, farther and faster to the north than they were moving south. Uh, so they were essentially going backwards. Uh, for that first week to 10 days or so. But then it sort of straightens itself out and they work their way down. They, they discover several islands as they go and uh, explore them and declare them also as American soil, uh, working their way towards the uh, central coast of, of, of Siberia. These islands that they discovered are still known today as the DeLong Islands. Uh, also somewhat controversial. A lot of uh, there are certain American groups that think that we should sort of seize them back from, from the Russians. Okay, so they finally reach open water uh, after 92 days, and they find that these boats that they've been dragging over the ice and have been battered and, and uh, beaten up the whole way, they can't, they can't float. 
So they have to essentially rebuild these ships using whalebone and walrus bone and tusks and uh, driftwood. Uh, but Melville and, and his uh, carpenters get to, get to work and they somehow make these ships, these little boats, seaworthy. And they finally put into the water in late August 1881, only to, after the second day, encounter an enormous gale, which separates the three boats from each other. And really the story of the Jeanette at that point becomes the story of the very different fates of these three different boats uh, as they make their way towards land. Now this is where they were headed, the Lena Delta, which is the delta of one of the largest rivers in the world, the Lena River, uh, which empties into the Arctic Ocean. Uh, because it flows north into the Arctic, it tends in the fall to, to freeze first at its delta. And it creates this enormous ice barrier to its own current. So the river has to sort of splay out in an exaggerated fantail. Uh, and it's the largest delta in the world. Uh, it, many, many thousands of islands and tributaries and back channels. And uh, it is, is an enormous labyrinth. And this is essentially the landscape that the, the men of the Jeanette uh, encountered when they made landfall at very different places. The gales spread them out over several hundred miles. This is something like three times the size of the Florida Everglades, but a frozen Everglades. And this is the place where they tried to you know, find themselves and also find some sort of salvation from the, the local um, natives. Unfortunately, they had very poor maps and uh, were completely and hopelessly lost for about a month as they wandered through this labyrinth. I wanted to go to the Lena Delta to try to understand this terrain and, and to also to try to find a place that I had heard about um, that's called America Mountain. 400 miles north of the Arctic Circle and this permafrost, this delta, uh, I'd heard that there was a place called America Mountain that was a monument to the men of the Jeanette that the Russians had built or uh, the, the least the Russians were, were still keeping up after all these years. Uh, to get there, I had to go to this place, which is called Tixi. It's a, an abandoned Cold War, War um, installation that is, is basically a ghost town now, but it's the only place where you can uh, find any sort of uh, semblance of civilization. I, wanted to, I had to get permits there. I wanted to find uh, some way to get into the Delta. Uh, you find all kinds of sort of sketchy characters in Tixi. There's not really much to do there but drink a lot of vodka and, uh, and apply for your permits. Eventually though, after asking around, I found these two guys who uh, had a riverboat company. Uh, they were contracted by the government to uh, keep the channels open of the Lena River. And they knew about America Mountain. They knew where it was. They said it would take about a week to reach it. And for the small price of a lot of vodka, a bunch of cigarettes, and uh, $5,000, um, I could come on board the ship, work on the ship, and uh, they would take me to America Mountain. So I uh, got on board and uh, worked our way deeper and deeper into the Delta. This was the last village that we called on, which was a, an old Russian, an old Soviet weather station, uh, before we kind of dropped into this complete wilderness. It, like Wrangell Island, is, is a uh, restricted wilderness preserve. They say there's two seasons in this part of Siberia. There, there's winter and then there's mosquito. And of course we were there in August during mosquito. So we were swatting bugs the whole time, but working our way deeper into the Delta until we finally found America Mountain. Uh, the ship ran aground. <laughs> we got out into a smaller boat and then ultimately a raft and then finally started um, uh, wading our way across and splashing across these various waterways till we reached the base of the mountain and, and worked our way up. And sure enough, after all these years, uh, there still is a monument to the USS Jeanette on the top of America Kaya, America Mountain. This was my guide, Andre, uh, who took me up there. And uh, he was a former Russian soldier, enjoying some of the cigarettes that I had bought him. And uh, it's an amazing place. It's <clears throat> almost exactly the way it was left from the 1880s. At the bottom of that little <clears throat> obelisk there, there's a little box and inside the box is um, all kinds of little relics and trinkets that had been left by visitors over the decades mostly meteorologists people studying permafrost russian scientists i was amazed at how well known the Jeanette expedition is over there in russia 
Um, and in the United States, we seem to have completely forgotten about it, but there, still reasonably well known. So we paid our respects, hung out there for a number of hours. This photograph was taken at about 3 a.m. because, you know, it doesn't get dark during the summer. We had a little picnic up there and then finally uh, left. But I just desperately wanted to go to America Mountain. It was really important to me somehow to, to see this place with my own eyes. This is the place where those who did die, and I'm very vague about what happened on the voyage at this point, who lived and who died, I, I think you, I do believe that readers have found it a lot more powerful experience not knowing what happens, so I don't talk about it too much, but those who did die were buried here. This was uh, a sacred place. So the men who survived came back to the United States. Obviously, the, the world was uh, shocked to hear what had happened to them, but also celebrated them as, as heroes uh, to science. And uh, there were enormous parades in New York City, uh, best-selling books, naval inquiries, poems and songs and paintings. James Gordon Bennett, publisher of The Herald, got his big blockbuster story, uh, and then some. There were some hundred pieces written about the Jeanette in his newspaper alone, uh, certainly bigger than Stanley Livingston in terms of uh, newspaper sales. DeLong uh, and his journals were, were published in the form of a best-selling book, The Voyage of the Jeanette. Uh, a number of monuments were, were built around the country in New York City. This is a, a, the Woodlawn Cemetery, which is one of the great uh, cemeteries in the world, uh, the Gilded Age Cemetery, where there is a Jeanette memorial. Other of the Jeanette survivors went on to amazing careers, including Melville, the guy that I mentioned earlier who went on ultimately become the engineer in chief of the US Navy and a rear admiral and is quite well known in, in Navy circles. Now, we know exactly where the Jeanette went down. Some of you may have seen a few weeks ago, there was an article in the uh, papers about uh, the Franklin Expedition and a ship that was recently found from the, Franklin ex the British Franklin Expedition in uh, Canadian waters. After searching for 10 years, they finally found uh, what they believe is the uh, Erebus. But this sort of secret wish of mine, kind of a secret desire, which is to find the Jeanette and to photograph the Jeanette. Uh, we know exactly where it is uh, because DeLong took exact positional readings at the place where it went through the ice. Unfortunately, it's in Russian waters, so right this moment, our relationship with Russia is not so great. Uh, so geopolitical realities will have to change before we can send an expedition. But I've spoken to some Navy uh, marine archaeologists and some folks at NOAA who, who sent me this map. Uh, they're well aware of its location, and uh, it's a secret desire of mine that we'll uh, mount an expedition, perhaps finding a new James Gordon Bennett uh, to, to bankroll the whole thing, bring up some stuff from, from, uh, from the Jeanette. So that's the story of the Jeanette and that's sort of how I got into this and my sort of what I did over my summer vacation to get to get the story to get the story. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Hampton Sides and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman noting that there seemed to be quite a few poor command decisions made on the voyage that led to the loss of the Jeanette. She wonders how Sides feels about this presumption. I think the, the worst decisions were made before the voyage ever left San Francisco uh, because they we're going off science that was, although it's, it seems completely wacky to us now, uh, was cutting edge scientists. Some of these folks were the leading theorists of their, of their day. And it really says, it speaks to how little we knew about what was up there and how desperate we were to kind of fill in the blanks with these, um, these kinds of theories. The story of the Jeanette is sort of a Greek tragedy in the sense that there's just a series of near misses and bad timing and just like almosts. Uh, and one of those almosts is, as they're going north into the ice, another ship is heading south and heading ultimately for Washington, D.C. with all this data showing that there is, that the Kurosiwo does not go that far north, is not that powerful, does not uh, melt the ice or create a gateway into any, anything like an open polar sea. If they had known that, and it was just a matter of months uh, before they would have known that, uh, the expedition would have been scrapped and, and completely rewritten. You know, they probably would have 
gone for just simply trying to land on Wrangell Island, something like that. So bad timing is a big factor here. Um, once uh, they got into the ice, uh, I think DeLong's De uh, command decisions were, were brilliant. I mean, he kept everyone alive and healthy. There was no scurvy. There was not a hint of mutiny. Um, although people were going slowly crazy, they were, they were well occupied, and uh, there was, um, they were, I, in, a, in a weird way, they kind of thriving uh, until the ship sank. Once the ship sank, he had to hold this thing together to open water, which he did. Again, no one died. They were completely together as a unit until they put into the water and encountered that gale that I mentioned. That's when bad luck enters into the, the equation. And I think the sort of the difference between him and Shackleton at this point is that, uh, is that luck intervened here. Uh, if they had all made it to Siberia together as a unit, I think they would have all been saved. And then he would have been viewed as one of the great leaders of all time and, you know, celebrated in, at business schools you know, at Harvard Business School or whatever for his command decisions. So I think luck, you know, you have to fa factor in luck here. Uh, certainly that was true with Shackleton as well. He had good luck. Our next audience member questions why the islands, discovered by Americans and mentioned earlier in Side's talk, are currently in the hands of the Russians. The islands that you're, we're talking about were first claimed by the United States and raised a flag over, the, over them and claimed them for the president and so forth. But... Um, you know, geopolitics doesn't quite work that way. You can't just claim a piece of land and then it's yours. You gotta, you gotta kind of follow that up with like some sort of occupation or some sort of uh, colonization, which we never did. And the Russians uh, got ahead of us on that. And we really didn't, really didn't stake our claim. And now Wrangell Island especially, um, the, the Russians are getting more and more involved than ever because they're fearful that we're going to try to restake our claim. They're building a uh, a little base there, they're having more and more soldiers living there, and, and a Navy installation is being constructed. So uh, it's interesting. The Arctic is opening up, you know, because the ice is receding. There's a whole lot more interest in, in the, the wealth of the Arctic and uh, certainly in petrochemicals. Uh, so it's, it's, you're going to see a little bit more about Wrangell Island in the, in the, months, in the months ahead. Another audience member asked Sides if he started writing In the Kingdom of Ice before he found the trunk of letters, and if so, how did that change the book and his writing process? Uh, yeah, I just decided to make the, uh, I made the decision to write the book years ago, four years ago, and I found the letters, you know, a year into the process. And I didn't really fully know what I had either. I had to take them home and begin to kind of <laughs> curate them, you know, and collate them and try to figure out um, and label all the letters and date them and try to figure, figure out what they were. But it did change, I'd say, the second half of the book. When you, when you get into the book, you know, the letters become pretty important. Uh, you begin to hear from her, you begin to, you know, she's almost a stand-in for all the wives and girlfriends and mothers of all the men on the, on the, on the voyage. And her voice is really important, I think, to uh, Kind of the, as I said earlier, kind of the emotional spine of the story. Our next question asker wonders why this amazing story is not very well known today. I think one of the reasons is because uh, it was written about in great detail right after it happened. There were four or five different accounts that were published uh, in the 1880s. And, it, you know, sort of like it, it was a supernova of, you know, publishing activity and then nothing. Uh, that's one reason. Another thing is, I think in the United States, uh, more so than, than in Britain, we, we really like our winners. You know, we like to win. And so uh, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, we did reach the North Pole with Perry and, and, Hens and Henson in, in 1909. So I think that that series of expeditions of, of Perry's certainly overshadowed the Jeanette in the end. Uh, another thing is those photographs. I think if there had been images, if all the images hadn't gone down with the ship, we're a very visual culture and I think we like our images. And one of the reasons I think that the Shackleton expedition is so well known is those amazing photographs that survived and uh, were published um, later. Certainly that's one of the factors. Other than that, I, you know, I just think it's, uh, it's a question of which writers come along and how do they write about it and how do they try to sort of re- reimagine the story for a new generation. And uh, I think that um, 
you know, that's a big factor is the writers themselves. So th there have been some accounts. There was a book written in the 1980, uh, 1980s. There was a book written in the 1960s. There was a book in the 1930s called Hell on Ice, which was also the subject of a Orson Welles, uh, Orson Welles radio drama. So, you know, the story's kind of had its ebbs and flows, but, um, you know, I'm hoping that my book will at least help kind of with a new generation to uh, bring it to a new audience and uh, elevate it to, the pl to a place where it belongs, I think. This question is how did Hampton Sides decide to write this story in particular? This whole process of deciding what to write next is something that is still, after all these years of doing it, it's still completely mysterious to me. You know, it's a combination of rational thought and um, completely irrational hunches that I have. You know, something grabs me. It's usually a character or a couple of characters. The depth of the, uh, of the primary material, um, in this case, there's just a wealth of great stories. Um, the, the, I mentioned a congressional inquiry, also a naval inquiry, uh, all this testimony that was given. All the survivors wrote books. You know, there's just a ton, you know, all the journals that DeLong wrote, these beautiful journals. So that having that primary documentation is, is really, really important. I think also in this case it was, um, you know, a realization that we're, we're focused again on the Arctic and we're certainly focused on our relationship with Russia. Uh, and it just seemed like a good time to revisit this tale. Uh, for, for all those reasons. I first heard about it when I was in Oslo, Norway at this museum. Uh, I was doing a story for National Geographic about an explorer named Fridtjof Nansen, a, a Norwegian explorer, an amazing man who in the 1890s essentially tried to duplicate the voyage of the Jeanette, but do it in a different kind of ship that was designed differently to withstand the, the ice pressure even better. Um, he rammed himself into the ice in the same place where the Jeanette did and hoped to drift to the North Pole. Uh, he didn't quite make it either. Uh, he had his own travails. He did survive, but at his museum, the Fram Museum in um, Oslo, which is an amazing museum right next to the Kontiki Museum, it's just a bunch of ship museums, you'll see all kinds of references to the Jeanette and to DeLong. And I thought, well, this is really weird. I mean, uh, I'm an American. I've never even heard of this thing. This is supposed to be an American expedition. So I just filed that away, went home, and started reading about the expedition and realized this is my next book. You know, this is this is great. Because I think nonfiction writers like me, you know, we have two choices. We can either write another book about Lincoln, um, <laughs> which is great. He's a great man and all that, but uh, or we can try to find a more obscure story that was important in its day, uh, but is somehow forgot been forgotten. And that's that's what I tried to do here. I, I realized that this is one of those things. Our last question of the night comes from a gentleman wondering what Hampton Sides is going to write next. Uh, this sort of gets back to your question too, like how do I pick these things? Sometimes it's something that comes to me, and sometimes it's something that, uh, that uh, you know, it seems to come from my journalism. Uh, I, I'm gonna, my next book is almost definitely going to be about this particular battle that happened in the Korean War. It's a, it's a battle of Chosen Reservoir, and it's... Uh, it's a complicated battle to try to explain, but it's, it's one of the most epic battles of, in American history, and it's kind of a Thermopylae kind of situation. And I met some veterans uh, during my tour for Ghost Soldiers, my book about the Bataan Death March, and uh, I, I was convinced by these guys that I should write about the frozen chosen, uh, the chosen few, as they're sometimes called. Uh, it's an amazing story. And also, you know, similar in the sense it's very cold, <laughs> and almost all my books involve a death march. I don't know why. Uh, it seems to be the case, or certainly marching of some sort. Uh, if you hear of any good death marches, let me know. Um, but in the meantime, I think for the next you know, two, three years, I'll be working on that one. So maybe I'll be back here in lovely, uh, uh, it's Edina is the correct pronunciation, correctly? Okay. Um, in about, what, two, three years, talking about my new book about Chosen. So thanks for your question. Thank you for listening. Well, that's it from our Hennepin County Southdale Library event with Hampton Sides in Edina. Catch our next Club Book event with Julie Klassen at Anoka County's Rum River Library on Tuesday, October 21st at 7 p.m. Meet Julie Klassen, gear questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, 
check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.